Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, the mainstream media is peddling misinformation about firearms, Tom Cruise is going to space, and the liberal ban on conversion therapy is actually nothing of the sort. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hey, welcome along, everyone, to another edition of The Andrew Lawton Show, Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. Thank you so much for tuning in, especially after the firearms-intensive episode we did on Monday. It ended up being a deep dive into all things guns, talking about the liberal gun ban last week. And there's going to be some more firearm stuff in this show, but we're also going to get on to some other topics. In particular, MP Garnet Jenis is going to join to talk about why the liberal definition of conversion therapy that they're using to impose a ban on it isn't actually the real definition and in his eyes there's going to be a creation of more problems than the bill solves so we'll talk about that later on in the show also a couple of little odds and ends that I didn't get to on Monday and some other things happening in the world this one's going to be a bit more free form I don't even know where we're going to go I just know how long we're going to do it for and at the end maybe we'll go back to having something that's a bit more rigidly structured but I've just got more stories than I can fit in so I think if I like promise I'm going to get to all of them, I won't. So I'm just going to at some point just go tab fishing and talk about various things that are happening. But this one I did plan. This one I did plan. And that is that did you know there are machine guns that are just ubiquitous throughout Canada? That everywhere you go, there's a machine gun. Just machine guns, Tommy guns, Uzis, Gatling guns, no matter what, it's there. I didn't, but I have stand, I'm have i standing to be corrected here because Heather Malik says so. Heather Malik, the Toronto Star scribe, says in a column, don't grandfather machine guns, eliminate them. Now, there are a lot of things in that. It's how many words? One, two, three, four, six words in that headline, and I, I think she's probably managed to have something wrong with every single one of them. But I want to go through this. The idea that she's putting forward in the column, which is actually a sensible enough idea in if you try to you know attribute sense to Heather Malick, which is a big if. But if you do, her point is that if these guns are so terrible, why are you giving people two years? The liberals have put in this two-year amnesty period. You can still own the guns for two years while the liberals try to figure out what to do with them. And the idea that she's putting forward here is that if they're so bad, you should just get rid of them, ban them, take them back immediately, confiscate them, do whatever you need to, but don't let people have these guns. And, and that is actually not an illogical position. Now, for obvious reasons, I don't want the liberals to do it, but it makes sense because if the next two years show there's no gun crime, no mass shootings, and people still are under this amnesty, doesn't that prove what gun owners are saying now? which is that there isn't really all that much of an issue in Canada from guns and specifically from the type of guns that the liberals have now prohibited. So that's part of it here. And by the way, if you look at the prohibition list, it's quite interesting. We talked last week about the Facebook group name and the blog name. There have been some other things that have been found on here to be banned. And we'll talk about this uh, very briefly now because one of them was like a missile launcher, a rocket launcher, grenade launchers, none of which you could get in Canada. And the liberals have not actually put forward anything, anything to support the idea that you could have gotten these guns before. I mean, if so, that is just a missed opportunity 
opportunity for a lot of gun owners that we could have been arming ourselves with whole, you know, rocket launchers, anti-tank missiles, anti-aircraft guns, the whole shebang. You can just sit out on your balcony in the summer, sit out on your porch and, you know, crack a beer, lay back, put on some Frank Sinatra and start just lobbing grenades uh, into the field behind you. But apparently you could do that no longer. So Heather Malik, however, to go back to this, is saying that we should just get rid of guns. But here's the problem with this. Machine guns. These are not machine guns. I've spoken at endless lengths about this, the difference between semi-automatic and what a lot of people think it means, which is fully automatic, like a, a gun where you hold the trigger and it just keeps shooting. But Heather Malik doubles down on this, and she says in the column, semi-automatic in name only, they can easily fire almost as fast as an automatic rifle used in war. In other words, they are basically machine guns, but not called that because simple words are obscured by cults lobbying for mainstream respect while whitewashing hideous death, e.g. shooter, which evades the more damning gunman word. Now, I don't think that shooter and gunman, when you're talking about a criminal, are all that dissimilar. I say killer, I say murderer. So I don't think that cults are lobbying for this, like she tends to say about the gun community. But also, <laughs> there, there are just a lot of assumptions here. Now, she claims in the column that she grew up with guns. I don't believe that. I think that she's just illiterate and grew up with gum. And that's the only thing that I can think of. I said on Twitter that Heather Malick is either the most willfully ignorant person in Canadian media or she's the greatest performance artist of our era. I can't decide which because with stuff like this, I assume that she has to be putting on just some act and this has to be some big stunt that's like an Andy Kaufman-esque attempt at just, you know, pulling the wool over everyone's eyes and she's been doing it for 20 years and is going to keep doing it because no one can be this willfully ignorant about guns. For her to claim that she grew up with them, I don't think she ever touched them. I don't think she ever asked anyone about them. I don't think she knows anything because if she did, she would know why this is just wrong. Not iffy, not well if you look at it. No, it's just plain wrong. But this is the type of fear-mongering, especially in the Toronto Star, especially in the city of Toronto, that is driving the narrative in many ways. Because people in Toronto are going to look and say, oh my, oh my goodness, th this isn't Grandpa's hunting rifle they're talking about. This is a, a machine gun. Tom, come read this article. Apparently machine guns were in Canada. I didn't know. Like, th this is terrifying people. This is the sort of thing that is just completely flying in the face of the facts, of the truth. But this is the messaging that is really selling the liberal plan. This is the messaging that is serving as the basis for the liberals being able to get away with this. You know, people have actually looked into this list a bit more. And in many cases, the whole point of it, and I said this on Monday, is that these guns are not even independent, fully-fledged guns. They're just every variation and permutation of numbers imaginable. And I've, I've seen a whole bunch of people that have said, oh, do you know this was there, this was there, this was there. It sounds like an airsoft gun's on the list. Uh, one person had said to me that there was a, a bolt-action hunting rifle that was on the list. I, I wasn't able to find it myself, but they've also written them out very differently so I don't know necessarily. But the whole point of this is that I think they just tried to shove everything they could on this list to say to Canadians, we're banning 1,500 things. And then at the end of it, 
uh, they say, okay, well, uh, you know, we're, we're running out of things. Let's just pop those grenade launchers on there. No one will look it up. No one will read through 1500. And then a couple of people with time on their hands did. And I'm glad they did because it, it shows the absurdity of all of this. So I actually had an experience in the last two days that revealed to me how the government actually has no plan here. I mentioned on the last show that I'm moving and I had had to reach out to the RCMP actually and say, listen, are, are people who are moving allowed to transport their firearms? And the RCMP media relations person said, yes, so that would be fine. I said, okay. So because we're doing it in a little while, I just wanted to get out of the way. So I emailed the CFO, the chief firearms office in my province, and I said, I'm moving. Here's my uh, firearms license number. Here's where I'm moving. I'd like to get a temporary authorization to transport, which basically is a piece of paper that says, yes, you are permitted to move them from this point A to that point B. And when it came back, the It lists on it, I'm not going to show you because I don't want the details to be public, but it lists the firearms that are included in the authorization. And one of them was missing. And the one that was missing was, you guessed it, the AR-15. If you didn't guess it, it was the AR-15. And I'd, I'd immediately responded back. I said, hi, you know, thank you very much. I said, this one's missing here. I'm assuming that this is because of the prohibition. However, please advise, yada, 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 you know, here unto, uh, you know, yours sincerely. I'm very formal when I talk to government uh, people. And, <laughs> and then uh, she had actually called me. And I should have recorded the call because this is like the one piece of exculpatory evidence I need if I end up arrested. But she had said, listen, at this point, there is no plan from the government. I'm paraphrasing, but she said the problem is that it won't let us give you an ATT because it's been prohibited. However, there's no mechanism to do anything else with it. So the, the advice was just move it. I mean, it, it seems to be covered by the amnesty, so just move it. But the chief firearms officers didn't know what was supposed to happen here. Didn't know what was supposed to happen here. So the problem with this is that it was completely thrust out the door. And if the government were, as Justin Trudeau said, preparing to do this anyway prior to the pandemic, it's a shame they have nothing to show for it. This suggests that they did thrust it out the door because the actual information isn't there. The answers to the questions aren't there. All they have is a list of guns, some of which are airsoft guns, some of which are grenade launchers, and some of which, by the way, according to the Canadian Shooting Sports Association, are shotguns that are used for hunting. Now, I didn't pick up on this when the list first came out, but at the very bottom, it talks about uh, the idea of having a removable choke. So the choke is something that's in the, mu the muzzle of a shotgun, and the choke determines the spray. So shotguns are not shooting bullets, they're shooting a shot, they're shooting, you know, pellets, little ball bearing type things, and the choke is what decides whether it goes like this or like this. And the whole point of that choke is that it can change the pattern and, and as ex by extension, the power of the gun. Well, some shotguns that are used for hunting 10 gauge, 12 gauge shotguns have a removable choke. It's just the nature of the firearm. Those are banned. Now, Bill Blair has accused the CSSA of peddling misinformation, but they actually got a legal opinion that at a glance looks like it has a heck of a lot more knowledge and time and effort that went into it than anything the government has done putting it. So I'm, I don't think that if you get arrested for having a gun that's now prohibited, that Bill Blair's Facebook post telling you it's not actually illegal is going to do all that much to save you. 
So that's going to be a, a big problem here. And they've also banned guns that are not semi-automatic, that are used for hunting, some for long-range shooting, others for taking down big game, like 50 caliber rifles is a great example. There are people that just have these large ranches out in Alberta, Saskatchewan, where they do long-range target shooting. That's done. That's gone. Now, technically, you can't use them. So people that have invested thousands and thousands of dollars into these things are now sitting on something that is worthless. The government doesn't have a buyback plan. They don't even have a surrendering plan. They don't have any idea how many of these guns there are or where they are. It sounds as though Justin Trudeau at least has not closed the door on grandfathering. So this is something that came up, I think it was on uh, Monday afternoon or, or Tuesday, whenever it was, where Trudeau was asked about grandfathering and he didn't say no. But the whole point is they need to come up with legislation. And the reason that I said a few times, and I, I was talking to Rod Giltaka about this from the CCFR, that I don't want people to put too much stock in the order and council part of this is because I don't want people to think that if this were to go through Parliament that there would be a different result. There wouldn't be. The Bloc Québécois is very anti-gun. The NDP is very anti-gun. The only thing that the NDP would care about conceivably is uh, Northern and Aboriginal communities, but given they've been given an exemption on this, it, it doesn't really matter. So the Liberals are, are very right when they say that the NDP and the Bloc are behind it, which means the Conservative opposition can make some noise, they can raise some questions in committee, but they cannot stop legislation from going through. So yes, it's undemocratic, but you shouldn't make the undemocratic part of this the be-all and end-all because they have the votes to get something passed that is more comprehensive when it's going through the legislature, whenever that point is. And, you know, as far as the Quebec thing goes, like, I'm actually regretting now, and I'm thinking that a lot of gun owners are regretting not just stamping French lettering on the sides of their guns, whatever the guns were, because that would probably be the only way you could convince the Bloc Québécois to be okay with the AR-15, if it was actually like the AR cans or something. Uh, pardon the French accent. I'm in gun mode right now, not French mode. But uh, the a the AR cans is actually good. The AR-15 is not good. So uh, that, would be <laughs> that would be the pitch I'd make to the Bloc Québécois now, just... Uh, because gun owners are in desperate need of a Hail Mary. And again, the Liberals are also looking to have handguns in municipalities banned, despite the fact that municipalities fall under provincial jurisdiction. The federal government has no right to legislate municipal affairs. So I don't know how it's going to do this legally. I have no idea if it will be legal. I hope there is a challenge. I'm in a city that I don't expect will push back against this if there's a, a big movement here. I would love it for there to be. I just am not optimistic. But the whole point, I mean, if you're in Toronto, you're screwed. Like, John Tory's been the one calling for the handgun ban. So if you live in Toronto, if you live in Montreal, if you live in Vancouver and you own a handgun, you might as well just find a way to turn it into a potted plant holder or something, because that's about all it's going to be good for by the time Trudeau and his team is done with this. So where there is some ambiguity, though, is in the handgun ban. Are they going to ban ownership or banning sales? 
Because if they ban sales, what they're doing is basically outlawing businesses that are already in a bit of a pinch here, businesses that sell these things. If they ban ownership, then it's, again, proving to completely miss the mark, to go after people who are not causing the problems, who are not the ones that are the source of gun violence, because that's coming from gangs, not from registered, licensed gun owners and people who own handguns. And all of this is to say that the liberals have actually no plan whatsoever. No plan whatsoever, and we are supposed to just accept that this is all in people's interest as a safety matter. It just isn't. And when you get people like Heather Mallet talking about machine guns flooding the streets, uh, you know, part of me wants to laugh about it, but at the same time, I know people are buying into this. So you have to push back against this misinformation wherever it is that it's coming from. When we come back in a moment, more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. Hope you are so far surviving the plague that is the coronavirus pandemic. And if you thought that we were just getting out of the woods here, well, the world has something else in store for you. Murder Hornets. Yes, Murder Hornets. I actually saw them open for Led Zeppelin, I believe, a few years back. Murder Hornets may spread east from British Columbia if not eradicated, an entomologist says. This is from a CTV story. I didn't realize this, that uh, Canada was uh, gifted a batch of Murder Hornets in August of 2019, although only now are people talking about them, and the reason why is because they have made landfall in the United States by arriving in Washington State. And now uh, officials are issuing warnings that the Vespa mandarinia species, which uh, uh, the Vespa mandarinia, not a type of motorized uh, scooter. It's not a moped. The Vespa mandarinia is a murder hornet. They are actually, in uh, technical scientific terms, assholes. That is the the technical scientific term. Hornets that will kill you (laughs) if they sting you. They can kill humans with multiple bites. And as uh, Riskin, Dan Riskin, who's a science and tech expert for CTV, says, sometimes an animal that looks scary is harmless, or an animal that looks harmless can be scary. This is one of those cases where it looks really scary, and it is really scary. And if we can put up an image of the beautiful uh, Vespa mandarinia up there, yeah, you'll see that that's not something you want flying towards you. And these are extremely aggressive, uh, not usually interested in humans or animals, thankfully, uh, but if they are there and you are the source of their interest for a moment, you will die, which is comforting. So it's not even like, oh, that'll hurt for a while. It's no, it'll hurt and and then you'll drop dead. So uh, here's the thing, though. (laughs) Sometimes in news stories, they tend to bury the lead. So this thing, you look down and it's uh, no one knows how they came to North America, but they came from Asia. Mr. Curry, who is a, or should I say Dr. Curry? Uh, yeah, I think I, I, I think I have to say Dr. Curry. Uh, Robert Curry, who's the University of Manitoba entomologist. Uh, Dr. Curry says they were likely brought here on cargo by accident or on purpose as a delicacy. <laughs> this, this is what he said. They probably came over here from Asia and soil that was shipped, maybe a plant that was shipped in potted soil or something like that. The queen's winter or overwinter in the soil, so it's possible that a queen could be introduced through that method. The other theory that has been proposed, although he notes there's no concrete evidence, is that they could have been brought over for human consumption as a sort of delicacy. But at this point, we don't really know how they got in. Did we not learn our lesson about these so-called delicacies from the bat soup and pangolin thing in the wet markets in China? Maybe we don't eat poisonous hornets. 
Maybe we don't. I, if if someone brought it over for that, they deserve whatever is going to happen to them. I don't know if the hornet that has venomous uh, poison that will kill you is delicious. I don't know who would think it was. I don't know who wants to catch these hornets to find out. It's not me. But please keep your murder hornets overseas. We don't need them in Canada. This is the whole point is that like I've been stung by bees and wasps and hornets in my life more times than I can count. I don't know how. I was a very unlucky child. So my general approach to this is that if there is something that can sting me, it will sting me. So, you know, I don't want it to be like where we finally get out of the lockdown post-coronavirus, we step outside, and then it's like you either have to run back inside or just uh, drop dead. It'll be like Zombieland 3. The sequel did so well, now it's time to turn it into a trilogy. So so that was a fun little uh, feel-good story for you all. Uh, wanted to talk about this as well, which is kind of amusing here. Uh, Tom Cruise who I did not think was ever going to get his due on the Andrew Lawton show, is apparently filming a new movie in space. Jim Bridenstein, or Bridenstine, who is the administrator of NASA, tweeted out, NASA is excited to work with Tom Cruise on a film aboard the space station. We need popular media to inspire a new generation of engineers and scientists to make NASA's ambitious plans a reality. So NASA teaming up with Tom Cruise, he gets a ticket to the space station. If we're all lucky, it'll be one way. You know, I think this is kind of neat. If NASA can offset a bit of its budget by working with Hollywood producers, that's fine. Elon Musk replied to the tweet and said it should be a lot of fun. So there are reports that SpaceX, which is Elon Musk company, uh, company might be involved. But I look at this in a, a different lens here. Is Scientologist the type of role that we want on the International Space Station? I don't know much about Scientology, but I feel like space domination might be high enough up on their list that perhaps when Tom Cruise comes and says, hey, uh, bring me into a space shuttle and take me up to the International Space Station, I'm thinking, you know, it might not be the best idea. Katie Holmes was thrilled about it because, you know, send him up and, uh, you know, he never has to come back down to Earth again. Uh, but I, I don't think that we want to be giving a Scientologist the keys to the International Space Station. That's all. Just a thought there. And in related Hollywood news, Tiger King, which we talked about a few weeks ago on the show, is getting a fictional adaptation with Nicolas Cage set to play Joe Exotic. Now, I'm a, a big Nicolas Cage fan. I know a lot of people hate him. I don't. I think he's great. And I could kind of see it. Like, I saw the side-by-side -side at the bottom of one article, and I, I could, you know, I could see it happening there. But then I, I realized that as much as there is a yearning for more Tiger King, if you've seen the show, because it is truly like nothing else, that is why I think it is destined to fail as a fictional enterprise. The whole point of fictional adaptations of things or semi-fictional adaptations of things is that movies and TV shows are a lot more interesting than real life. Real life is, is filled with just boredom interspersed with the occasional events. The Tiger King saga and the Tiger King characters and the story arcs are probably the only situation where nothing can possibly be as insane and unhinged as the real thing. Like, you cannot get someone to be a crazier Joe Exotic than Joe Exotic was. You can't get someone to be a crazier Carol Baskin than Carol Baskin. Although, there is another show where Kate McKinnon from SNL is apparently going to be playing Carol Baskin. So that one, again, I, I think she's funny. She'll be great. Uh, you know, hey, all you cool cats and kittens. I, you know, it just it makes me cringe, and I don't think that anyone else can do that as much as the original could uh, Carol Baskin herself. 
Let's talk a little bit about the culture that has permeated in the coronavirus world where people are being told you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, and there's a paranoia. Everyone's on edge. And here's a report, though, from Rasmussen, Rasmussen's poll. Liberals are significantly more likely to snitch than conservatives. Now, this was written about by the American Spectator, and it's perhaps an unsurprising story, but still a, a pretty interesting one as well. Because what they found in this poll is that the people more likely to be busybodies, and they they use 1,200 registered voters here, the most likely, as the article calls it, conscripts in the COVID militia are self-identified liberals who claim membership in the Democratic Party. In the poll, when respondents were asked whether they would report neighbors for holding a social gathering in their home of between 15 to 20 individuals, 44% of Democrats would turn in their neighbors, uh, but only 25% of Republicans would do so. The results are even more striking when they analyze by ideology. 46% of those identifying as very liberal would turn in their neighbors. 24% of those describing themselves as very conservative would be willing to inform on their neighbors. And moderates were in between 40% of political moderates. So here's what I find interesting about this. There is a culture that is... I thought not on party lines. I know that liberals are by and large more, and I mean not traditional classical liberals, but modern political liberals are more likely to, I thought, support some of the big government measures. But I kind of thought that the snitch culture would not be along ideological lines. And it may not be in a Canadian context. This is one poll and it's one poll from the US. But I did find it interesting because... I, I am one of these just do what you want type of people. And and I realize that with a pandemic, you have situations that are emerging where it's not just about someone endangering themselves. It's about someone endangering others. And, and the kind of person that's going to a, a 15 strong house party is the kind of person that's probably not going to be uh, implementing great hand washing protocols and sanitizing and all this other stuff when they go out into the world. So I, I do think there's a case to be made that, yes, there is a risk there. But I also don't think it's the responsibility in a, in a free society to deputize individual people to basically become state informants, which is what a lot of this has done. Look, I went out for a walk uh, with, a, with my wife on the weekend, and we went to this uh, park nearby, and there were lots of people, but everyone was just doing their own thing and staying out of each other's way. And the park was open. I didn't think we were breaking the law. There was a part of me that was like on the drive there. I said, you know, if I am going to get a ticket, I'll at least have a good story out of it. That's kind of the approach that I have to the world uh, sometimes, which is that there's good experiences and there's material and that's it. There are no bad experiences, but alas, I had a good experience. No material out of that one. We've got to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk to Garnet Jenis about his column in the Epoch Times, the malign newspaper that uh, the CBC wants to pretend is racist, but we're going to be talking about why there is an argument that the federal government is missing, and one again that comes down to passing off a definition of something that just isn't accurate. That's up next here on The Andrew Lawton Show. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. As we talk about what life is going to look like after the pandemic, we also have to look at what some of the things on the political agenda were for Canada prior to the lockdown and which of these may come back. And one that I saw a lot of headlines about and a lot of outrage about, and and frankly, I, I hadn't 
looked into it too deeply because there were other things going on that I was focused on, is a ban from the federal liberals on conversion therapy. And we know that conversion therapy has a very dark history. People that are forcing or have historically forced those who are gay or have a sexual orientation other than being straight into compliance with being straight if that's not who they are. And it's very terrible that this has happened, but that isn't what's being banned in this legislation. And if you look at the fine print, you see, as the old saying goes, that the devil is in the details. So I want to talk about this with MP Garnet Jenis, who has written a great piece in the Epoch Times about it. Conversion therapy bill could have far-reaching and unexpected consequences. The Sherwood Park, Fort Saskatchewan MP joins me on the line now. Garnet, good to talk to you. Thanks very much for your time. Great to be here, Andrew, and thank you for the opportunity. Hope uh, hope you're doing okay under the quarantine uh, conditions here. Yes, likewise. Uh, the bill that uh, is really at, at stake here, I, I find to be very interesting. And I mentioned to my listeners earlier, I, I hadn't really looked too much in depth at it because I think like most Canadians, when they hear conversion therapy, they have a vision in their mind of what that is and, and they're against it. And you've raised a number of scenarios that I'll get to here, but this isn't actually about conversion therapy, at least insofar as how people define that term in their minds. Yeah, let's let's just hit this very clearly off the top, so there's no ambiguity. And I, I, I and all of your viewers, I'm sure, would agree with this. Uh, conversion therapy uh, is bad, and we're against it. And it's legitimate for the state to to take action on it, uh, as long as we are understanding what we mean by conversion therapy when we say that. There's this history around using uh, abuse, violence, degrading treatment uh, to try and compel people to change their sexual orientation. Uh, not only is that uh, ineffective, not only did it not work, but it's uh, contrary to, to human dignity, to, to degrading treatment, violence, bullying, uh, in in any uh, kinds of uh, ki kinds of of context, um, what what I'm concerned about is that this legislation actually uses a definition for conversion therapy, uh, which is is so broad as to be at at certain points incorrect, and would call conversion therapy things. Uh, that I think everybody would accept are not conversion therapy. The definition is expansive such that it includes um, efforts to uh, reduce a person's sexual attraction or behavior. Uh, so if, uh, if a parent, if a mentor were to say to a 16-year-old uh, or a 14-year-old, maybe you should uh, wait until you're a bit older before you become sexually active, uh, or maybe you should uh, uh, dial back a particular relationship. Maybe you should, uh, uh, you know, not not be behaving in in certain contexts at, at a certain age in a way that 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 as 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 an effort to reduce sexual attraction or behavior could be read into this law as as being conversion therapy. The interesting thing is that you know the co communications around the release of the bill. Uh, the government said it doesn't include private conversations. It doesn't include all these things. They said it doesn't include in the legislation. The, the the text of the bill itself. Not the accompanying communication, but the text of the bill itself, which is which is what would become law, uh, doesn't contain those those exceptions. So, uh, you know, we're, we're all against conversion therapy, but there's, I think, a, a need to understand and and amend and fix the definition here. If the definition isn't fixed, it leaves the door wide open for 
for parenting conversations, for for casual discussions, as well as you know legitimate things that parents might say to their children to be to be uh, perversely read into into the definition. Yeah, and there's actually a petition that you link to in the article, which has, as you just note, fixthedefinition.ca, and we'll put that up on the screen there for people to see it. Fix the definition. So is it just a matter in your mind of wanting this bill clarified and that definition fixed, or is it that you think the bill itself should be scrapped? Well, I think the definition is the issue. Uh, I, I, I would be very happy to support legislation which clearly addresses the issue of conversion therapy, as everybody uh, or, or I think as most people kind of understand the term to be and as, as, as it comes from terrible practices. It's about the definition. It's about the need to, to fix the definition. Uh, this, this should be an area on which there is consensus. I think there is consensus. Uh, maybe it's just sloppy legislative drafting. And we've, we've seen various cases from this government of sort of trying to rush something out and not doing the legislative drafting, right? Or or maybe it's something more insidious. Maybe it's a, an effort to uh, use a, an expansive or incorrect definition to create a political wedge when really there's no need for that. I mean, there, there's there's agreement on this, but I think there would also be agreement that, uh, that, that parents should be able to give instruction to their children about sexual behavior that uh, that that uh, mentors, that uh, faith organizations can can teach, you know, things about sexual behavior uh, in a in a in an affir- in a dignity affirming way, uh, and that 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 shouldn't create sort of questions about uh, about legality. Yeah, and I just want to rhyme off very quickly some of the situations you include here, which I think fall outside of the parameters of that stereotypical and historic definition of conversion therapy. You cite a 17-year-old who could be struggling with severe addiction to pornography, and he enters a course of psychological counseling to manage that. So in that case, it would be consensual seeking of treatment. And another one that we're seeing more commonly, especially with a case out in BC, uh, gender affirmation. A grandfather telling a six-year-old girl who thinks she's a boy, no, you're a girl, there are girls and boys. So these are not even cases of therapies that would be a foul of the law. These are private conversations. And you're saying that when the liberals have uh, promised those are not included in the bill, they actually are. Uh, yeah, and, and I mean, I will say, I think the definition is ambiguous, right? And the 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 concern is, you know, I, I think probably some of these situations would run afoul of the law as it's written. Uh, but there's also a chilling effect where if it's ambiguous, you know, am I allowed to say this to my child or not? That creates, uh, you know, potential issues when you're trying to have these these conversations. Um and you know whatever you might think of the the choices of of parents in some of these these situations, um, you know I, I think these these raise real issues. You know you, the, the the pornography example, right? We know that uh, that uh, that younger and younger children are are being exposed to sometimes very violent pornographic images on on the internet, and um, you know counseling around uh, what some of the effects of those things may be. Uh, is 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 an important thing for us to be thinking about. Uh, when you, if you have have twelve and thirteen year old boys that are seeing violent sexual images and they need to kind of think about uh, sexual attraction and behavior and and try to kind of reorganize their thinking around some of those. So obviously that's 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 very important. Um, you're you're right to point out as well, Andrew, that the legislation doesn't uh, define 
this as, as sort of purely in a, in a therapeutic context, right? It, it includes any, any practice, right? I mean, what, what, what's, a, what's a practice, right? Uh, it, it very much could include private conversations, I think. Uh, and there, although the government's communication said it doesn't include private conversations, there's no such exclusion in the legislation itself. So uh, if, if, if a group of friends are having a conversation about what they think about uh, transgendered uh, issues, uh, you know, I, I think what, whether, whether people might agree or disagree with some of the things that are said in that conversation, I, I think it's sort of common sense that the state shouldn't be uh, policing the things people might say to each other as friends in casual conversation about their, their views on gender identity. And it stands to reason that someone going to, and I'd say especially someone going to some sort of a spiritual leader, a priest, a rabbi, a minister, that would be under the microscope under this. You know, I, I think you, you hear uh, some of the, the discourse, people people promoting this idea that, that uh, you know, we've got to clamp down on, on religious organizations, supposedly. Uh, I do want to be clear, like, I don't, I don't think there is any religious organization, certainly that that I'm no churches, uh, uh, mosques, uh, synagogues that that want. Uh, I think you, you'd find general agreement from faith communities as well that conversion therapy, as properly defined, is unacceptable. Uh, but yes, of course, in a, in a religious uh, context, uh, there there are also conversations about sexuality where people are saying, uh, you know, you should conform your uh, sexual behavior. Uh, to to ways that align with uh, the teachings of your faith, and um, and if people don't like the messages they're receiving, they're of course welcome to uh, to seek out uh, spiritual fulfillment in the context of a of a different faith community that that has a different approach to these sexuality issues. But uh, it, it it would seem to be a big overreach if the implication of this is that the state is saying that that uh, that faith communities can't uh, can't teach ideas about sexuality. Uh, that that may reflect their teachings, but may not be uh, sort of in vogue with with the, the assumptions about sexual behavior in our modern society. Douglas Murray, who's a, a great writer and author and a gay man himself, has said that his issue with a lot of these conversion therapy bans that have been proposed elsewhere around the world, not about this one specifically, is that they don't often allow for people that might have a discomfort with something in their own life to seek it, even if it's completely voluntary. And is that your reading of this bill, that if someone, and I'm not talking about a gay person that's trying to turn straight, I, I think we've all agreed that that's not uh, within the parameters of, of what anyone in society should be advocating but, you know, should there be, or is there under the bill as it's written now, something that would allow someone who is personally uh, interested in changing an aspect of their life to seek out a service that does that? Or has that gone as well? Well, there's this, this as part of the definition, there's this kind of exception afterwards that says it doesn't include people that are uh, exploring aspects of their identity. Um, but but there, there is sort of loaded ambiguity here that that yeah that that, that raises that question. Um, you know, pe- people that are and and, and I've in, in sort of thinking about this issue, uh, I've I've talked uh, in in detail with gay friends of mine, uh, some of whom uh, are are involved in faith communities, some of whom are are not at all, and. Uh, you know, they they would I think all all agree that that conversion therapy, as it's been historically understood, is is uh, deeply problematic. Um, but that there are also issues with this definition, and part of that issue is, uh, yeah, the, the the liberty of of people who who uh, are LGBT to 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 have conversations within their own 
um, within their own faith communities as they as they try and explore uh, explore the, these aspects of their their identity. Um, I, I think we should be concerned about when people are subject to to bullying, degrading treatment. Uh, but if if people are hearing sort of a range of different points of view about uh, about sexuality, about theology, wh- whatever the case may be, view in a in a way that's you know aff- in a way that's respectful, that affirms their uh, their human dignity, um, it would be it would be strange for the state to say that that they have to somehow protect people from uh, from those kinds of conversations. And of course, right now, the government is focused on anti-coronavirus approaches and policies and all of these other things. So I know this is not front of mind right now, but it will be coming back. And and certainly, I think everyone can agree we don't want bills that are deliberately or unintentionally ambiguous. So the website with the petition, fixthedefinition.ca. Just before I I let you go, Garnet, I mean, what's your take on uh, the return to Parliament plan that we have now? I I know that we've had uh, Skyping in of of parliamentarians for the first time in, in Canadian in history, well, not Skype, but uh, the the parliamentary service. Do you think that there is an effective way to get things done through the the method that's been proposed and, and implemented now? Well, I I think we should have more in person sittings on Parliament Hill. Um, we we have one a week, and we're able to do that in a way that's uh, that's safe and uh, practicing social distancing in in the chamber and. Uh, there, there's no uh, public health reason why we couldn't have a few more of those a week, given that, again, we're already doing uh, one one a week. And the, the government's approach to this is, is quite inconsistent. They allege that, you know, oh, we got to keep people off Parliament Hill because it's not safe. And then they send a whole bunch of ministers to the Hill to do a, a press conference uh uh, in terms of the, the the gun ban, it's like it's it's uh, it's it's safe for ministers to come and uh, announce sweeping orders in council, uh, but it's not safe for parliamentarians to come more to ask them questions. So, uh, look, we 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 need to uh, do everything we can to ensure that Parliament is working during these challenging times. Uh, the government is spending a lot of money; they're making expansive decisions. And I mean, part of the reason why it's important to talk about C8 and, and fix the definition uh, is the government has shown us, with their order in council on firearms, uh, that they are are willing to uh, aggressively advance other aspects of their agenda and try to use the potential lack of scrutiny to do so. So, in addition to all the issues around the money spent in the in the COVID nineteen response. Uh, there's a question about advancing other other aspects of, of, of their agenda. Um, Andrew, nobody thinks that we should have 338 MPs in the chamber at once, uh, shoulder to shoulder. Uh, you know, there, there, there's there's no one proposing uh, sort of a, a pure business as usual. Uh, we can we can uh, find adaptations, and we've we found them already. Uh, the, the 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 digital sitting, so called. Uh, I don't think you could have a real virtual parliament that would actually respect the rights and privileges of members. What we have right now is uh, a little bit of a workaround where it's it's a special COVID-19 committee. It does some of the things that would normally happen in the chamber, but it is formally a parliamentary committee, uh, which which means that there aren't some of the same limitations and requirements. Um, so so uh, and still there's technical problems with that. So let's 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 use the chamber more in person. That would be my uh, my suggestion.
Yeah, I've seen how many uh, ministers of the crown haven't actually been able to unmute in TV interviews. So I wasn't optimistic in the virtual parliament going off without a hitch just based on user error. So I appreciate that answer and appreciate your time today. Sherwood Park, Fort Saskatchewan MP Garnet Janice joining me on the line. Thanks so much, Garnet. Good to talk to you as always. Thank you. Great to talk to you and your viewers as well. And that does it for us today. We'll be back with more of The Andrew Lawton Show next week, Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day, Canada. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.